we all know there's a lot of different healthcare disparities in different communities, sure. um, underserved communities. And a lot of that is based on mistrust that these communities have because the providers, and, and it's a miscommunication, the providers may not understand a community that they're not a part of or they don't, a culture, and, and it's vice versa. But when you work on diversifying your, your staff, you work on representing different cultures, it makes that communication much easier and builds that trust. Welcome to 20 Minute Health Talk. I'm your host, Rob Hoyle, and today we have two amazing leaders from Northwell Health's Center for Emergency Medical Services. It's probably not a field that got turned upside down more than the EMS field during COVID. Today, we're being joined with Bernard Robinson, who's the Director of Operations for the Center for Emergency Medical Services at Northwell, and Tara McAvoy, who is a paramedic supervisor. Thank you so much for joining us here on 20 Minute Health Talk. Tell me how you guys were able to adapt during COVID? Sure. Um, well, thanks for having us. I, you know, I appreciate that and the, the chance to be heard. Uh, it was definitely, it is still ongoing. It's uh, a time of anxiety, especially in the initial phase when everything started to happen. There was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of information that we weren't sure if it was correct or not, a lot of changing information. And that had our crews, our EMTs and the medics quite anxious, to, to be honest. So that was a trying time. And, and it's funny, not really funny, but here we are a year later and we're still going through it and we're still here and, and we're still, you know, following those same guidelines. So it's been a long year and, and, and fatigue, you know, you start to feel that fatigue. Has COVID changed EMS? Yes. I think that uh, one of the things you'll find is that people will be wearing masks even after the mask mandate's gone because you think back now, it's like, why weren't we wearing masks all sure. this time going into hospitals? It, yeah. You know, they're more aware of the opportunities to get yourself infected or bring something home. And it, the whole big thing is to never bring anything home to your family. So, wow. Yeah, it, it definitely makes you think about all the time, all the things you've been exposed to and, and the possibilities and potential to be exposed. And I think everybody has that heightened uh, alert sense of, yeah, I'm not touching that. <laughs> you know, I'm going to put a mask on right now. So... That's a positive. That that's a positive. It's it, it's keeping people safe, and you know, yeah, keeping you safe and keeping the patient safe. Absolutely, you never know. Yeah. And speaking of bringing it home to your family, Bernard, you got COVID and you got really sick. Just tell us a little bit about your experience with COVID. Yeah, sure. That was actually a year ago, um, last March. Um, I decided to go out onto the into the field and you know assist with the crews and help them out. Like I said, anxiety was high. And I just figured it, it would serve better to be out there with the staff and, and ser you know, out there with them on the front line instead of being back, you know, in the office or something like that. So I went out on the overnight shift to facilitate some transfers out of our more crowded hospitals. At that time was uh, LIJ Valley Stream and LIJ Forest Hills. And somewhere in between the first or second night, I actually got exposed, got very ill, ended up being hospitalized twice, admitted to Manhasset went through every symptom, quarantined in my basement, just not being able to breathe was horrible. And um, thankfully I did, you know, things turned around, I got better and was able to get back out here with everybody else. Tara, what's it like for you and for the people that you supervise when they know somebody like Bernard is very sick? How much fear, how, how do you guys get through that and continue to do your jobs? Well, it was actually terrible because everybody was very worried about him because we knew how sick he was and we were watching people dying from this. And it was like, uh-oh, you know, because you care about the people. We, you, 
you're a family. And uh, so for the, for us, for the supervisors to deal with the crews, they would ask about him, how is he doing? And we try to give updates and try, you try to stay positive, but you're also like reminding them, make sure that you're washing your hands and using sanitizer. It's really a lot of precaution that you try to remind them of. And I, I think worrying about him made it everybody a little bit closer, even at that moment, just because it, it bonds you. Sure. And, and how do you inspire the crew to go out and keep doing the life-saving things that are so necessary? It, you do it with them. You, you know, it's, you listen to them. Everybody wanted to tell their story. Everybody had a horrible job. Everybody, it, you have to listen. You, I listened to more horror stories. I saw them myself. I was out there. And just to let them talk, let them talk through it, because this was nothing that you've ever seen. Like, right. I worked through um, the AIDS pandemic back in the 90s, and nothing. This was nothing. That was scary. This was terrifying. Bernard, I know that you're part of this national task force that focuses on diversity and inclusion. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I'm a part of a task force, which is run by the National Registry of EMTs and Paramedics. Um, I represent, I was asked to sit on this task force um, by the Ambulance Association of America. So I represent that organization as well as Northwell and, and our department. And it's a task force designed to address the issues of uh, inclusion, diversity, equity, and access within the EMS community, which is something that, you know, it's long overdue. Um, if you look at the numbers, 75% um, of, on a nation, nationwide basis, 75% of EMS professionals are male, 85% of EMS professionals nationally are non-minorities, and that does not, you know, effectively or ac accurately represent the communities that, you know, we serve. We all know there's a lot of different healthcare disparities in, in different communities, um, underserved communities. And a lot of that is based on mistrust that these communities have because the providers, and, and it's a miscommunication. The providers may not understand a community that they're not a part of or they don't, a culture, and, and it's vice versa. So that kind of helps to strengthen that distrust. Um, but when you work on diversifying your, your staff, you work on diversifying the, the different cultures and representing different cultures, it makes that communication much easier and builds that trust. And I think that that's something that Northwell's definitely um, on the right track of doing and, and doing a great job of it. And, it, you know, it's just we continue doing that and those that trust will grow. And, and that's something that it's, it's important to me. And to remember that it's not only diversity. Diversity is good, but it's diversity and inclusion. Sure. And, it, you know, and, and that's something that, you know, I, I think... I'm passionate about that as well, that, you know, we, we do need to um, diversify our leadership and, and, and have that reflect. That's the only way you're going to get ideas addressed that affect other communities is by having those diverse opinions. So, so Tara, what has it been like your experience being a woman in this field of mostly men? Um, it's challenging at times. It's gotten a little better over the years. When I started, it was women were just, you know, Nobody knew how to speak to you. It was whether it was cops or firemen or patients or people walking in the street. Everybody thought that they are allowed to judge you or tell you how you look or tell you, you know, you get a lot of, oh, my heart's breaking for you. I need mouth to mouth. You know, those kind of comments. And you're objectified and it's gotten better. It's, you know, slowly, kind of too slow. But um, to have diversity and inclusion, it's, you know what, it's making people understand that we're here and we should be given the same respect that a man would be given because we're doing the same job. So it's, it used to be a man's world, but uh, there's a lot more women in the field now. 
not enough, but a lot more. <laughs> Bernard, what lessons have you taken from this national task force and applied here to Northwell? So one of the first things is that you have to identify that what the issue is and that there is actually an issue. Um, another thing I learned is that being open-minded, you have to be open-minded when you're dealing with issues of diversity and inclusion. We talk about uh, cultural competence. An, an organization that has cultural competence is one that can effectively operate within multiple uh, cultures. Then we have cultural uh, humility, which is the inquisitiveness or, or wanting to learn about other cultures. And the more you want to learn, the more you talk, the more you're open to communicate, the, the, the smoother these kind of interactions will go and, and the better the relationship and communication will be. So that's something that we bring, I've, I've brought over, um, having diverse conversations with diverse groups. We have a uh, diversity and inclusion committee at our department where we discuss um, these kind of issues. We talk about microaggressions. We've talked about um, implicit bias, and, and that's on a department level, but it kind of opens up people's minds to, all right, maybe I am a little guilty of this. This is something I need to work at, and self-reflection is where it needs to begin. We, ha we have been told on, on national levels by organizations that this is not a problem with my organization. You know, that's not true, right, but, sure. <laughs> but some, pe you know, some people refuse to believe that you know, this is something that needs to be addressed. And this committee, this task force is designed to address those kind of issues regarding um, recruitment, regarding education, retention, training. How do we get those numbers to change? Where are we recruiting our staff from? You know, what areas, what neighborhoods? A lot of neighborhoods don't even know how to get a job like this or where do we even start? I wouldn't have known how to get into EMS if had my father not worked in EMS. I would have no idea. And I don't know how many times I've been asked by people when I was sitting in the ambulance, how do you get this job? How do yeah. you, you know, they don't know. Right. So it's about where are you recruiting from? Uh, and some, some states have pipeline programs where they go into communities and set people up with training to get certified. We used to go to college fits as a department, you sure. know, and that's good. But maybe there may be a lot of prospective um, employees that, or not, don't go to those colleges. Maybe they're, you know, we need to go to a community center or a job fair like that and, okay. and stretch out. So both of you have decades of experience. You've been doing this a long time. You kind of know how things go. You kind of anticipate things, but then you have COVID and it just, did it just completely throw that monkey wrench into everything that you've learned and everything that you knew over the years? Yes. It, um, it kind of wiped the slate clean. We had, uh, we had to make it up as we went along and, you know, some rules, yes, you still treat the patients the same way or try to, but now you're dealing with, you know, not letting the families go. Every day it was something new. Every day something changed where, you know, you used to have these rules that were set. Like, this is what you do. This is how you do it. This is how your day goes. Right. And uh, now you had to deal with so many changes, so many different jobs, so many crew members who just needed that moment that they needed, like, just to step back and say, hey, and you would give it to them where... Other times it'd be like, well, hurry up, go available. You got another job. And now it's like, okay, sit down and talk to me. Yeah. So, so with wiping that slate clean, is this an opportunity to make changes for the better going forward? Uh, that's a great question. And I will say, yeah, um, yes. A year ago, this was brand new. And, you know, six, seven, eight months into it, we started to realize what worked and what didn't work. So yeah, it wiped the slate clean, but we had to learn from our mistakes. 
And, that, and that's kind of what we did. And now, now we're in a much better place of handling this because we've learned from the mistakes that were made and the wins, right? The best practices as well and, and how to do things. Even as a health system, you know, we got into load balancing, which was something that, you know, we really didn't do prior, but that was a very big part of our response, and, and, you know, and our efficiency with handling, you know, the many patients. Um, as a department, we were able to adjust to that as well and figure out how to supply the ambulances, the resources to do this load balancing, how to supply and continue to do our normal transports um, into facility transports, how to continue to run our 911 operator, you know, sure. and Sky Health, community paramedicine. So we kind of had to adjust our operation with the health system, which is always our biggest challenge, right? Keeping sure. up with a health system that's growing and supplying the wow. ambulances for it. So how's everybody doing now, you know, a year later? I think that they're doing, they're doing better. I, the call volume, it's different, but now they've learned different ways to deal with what they've seen, or now they can look at a patient or treat a patient and see some vital signs that are a little off that were what they first were encountering. And they know like, okay, this is what I need to do for this patient. So it makes you feel, feel safer, but also know how to do your job a little bit better. Cause in the beginning it was just mayhem. Yeah. I think operationally, We've, we've seen some improvements. You know, we, we, we know how to operate now in this. We have this down. I think outside of work, socially, we're tired. Staff is tired. We're still, basically, we're still going full steam ahead with COVID. We're treating every patient as if they had COVID. We're still donning PPE on every assignment. Um, plans are still being affected by COVID. You know, weddings. I have, I have staff that have been trying to get married for almost yeah. a year and mm -hmm. a half now, and they keep changing the date because, you know, they... The venues can't hold them right now. And, you know, that's taking a toll. It's, it's, you have children, they're homeschooling, they're driving you crazy. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you never knew how much appreciation you would have for teachers until you had to, you know, homeschool your, your seven and eight year olds, you know, on your own. So it's going to be an ongoing challenge. You know what? I think that the call volume was so overwhelming. One of the things that doesn't really get talked about too often is how much death that they were seeing. Sure. And that's, so for everybody that got made it to the hospital, that was where you had to listen to the crews because they were pronouncing more people in like a week than they had in their whole entire career. And it was, I think, the toughest part for them. I remember on more than one occasion, a, cr a crew coming to me and saying, we just did 10 cardiac arrests mm -hmm. in one day, which is unheard of. Wow. But that wasn't uncommon, you know, during this time. Well, I like to say that we go beyond the front line and, and bring the patients to the front line, to the emergency room. We're going into the homes. Sometimes we go into homes and there may be five people there. They're all coughing. They're all sick. But we're there to get the sickest one. And but, they're, you know, we're exposed to that. And yeah. it's, it's definitely something, you know, you as we say at Northwell, right, you have to be made for this. It's that kind of a job that you, right. you have to be ready for that. And, and we all understand that this is what we signed up for. So with COVID and, and with patients wanting, family members wanting to come with the patient, how do you balance all that and communicate with the family member to let them know that like they're going to, this patient's going to be in good hands, but you can't come. It's a challenge because the family they're at their most desperate moment. So they want to be with their family because they're worried, you know, they've watched on the news how people don't come home sometimes. Or, so you have to still care for the patient. So while well, maybe your partner's doing whatever they need to, as you're moving the patient, you're still talking to them, explaining like the hospital's not letting you in. We are not allowed to put you in the ambulance right now because it's just this time. You know, the hospitals are shut to visitors and 
they don't always accept it very well, but you have to do it kind of simultaneously, like sure. have them walking out with you. Right. And, because time is ticking and every, every yes. second counts. So you can't really pull them aside and have the conversation, but you got to be telling them as you're working and try to explain that. And I guess that's, that's a tough, tough, tough balance. It is, especially when they're still standing at the back door of the ambulance and you're shutting it and saying, all right, we have to go. And you know, you, you drive away and you're just leaving people standing there. And that's why we see so much mental fatigue with our crews right now more than ever because of the the many times they have to go through that and, and you know, you're treating a critical patient, you're talking to the family, right. you know. And, and you and you put yourself in their shoes and you know this is how I would 100%, feel too. 100%. You might yeah. even be dealing with that yourself. Yeah, so when you talk about that mental fatigue, how do you manage that? How do you make sure your staff is okay? So one of the things that we do, and I, I encourage this, um, is check on your staff. Um, we, one thing we do, we have a lot of different outlets to communicate. We use social media, a platform. We use Teams now. We'll have general meetings. But I, I tell the supervisors and the managers, guys, just ask somebody how they're doing. You point them in the right direction to get the whatever assistance that they may need. But some people just need to talk and download. Um, and I encourage, we encourage um taking some time for yourself. You need those mental health breaks. You, you got it. You, you have to do it. Yeah. It's very, very important. I think it's so important when somebody opens up too, because then the the person they're opening up to may say, Hey, look, I've been in that same position and this is how I do it. And then you can feed off of each other and, and know that you have that support. But that goes back to being open-minded and, sure. and understanding. If I can't relate to what you're telling me, then I'm going to be like, well, just get over it. And that's not the response. Sure. That's kind of the old supervision that we grew up with kind of yes. coming up in the system where it was right. just go out and do your job. But this is a different generation. It, 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 it takes more. And it, it's more about leadership, not just yelling at people. Um, and it's about listening and letting them express themselves. So it's, you know, you have to be open-minded. You have to listen and ask questions and just listen. Don't wait to respond and, and shut them down. Listen and let, let them, you know, get it out. I think Northwell's actually done a great job offering different services to them. They have, they're very concerned about how people are because it was unprecedented. You never saw this much death at a time. And they had, you know, um, different programs, you know, they have EAP, they have, but they were doing a lot of kind of wellness checks. And the one thing that stood out to all of our crews, just because we deal with all the other hospital ambulances too, seeing them is that Northwell made sure everybody had PPE at all, like all the time. And sure. They were always like, you know what? They care about us. And I think that helped. But knowing that they have different avenues or venues to reach out to is good. So uh, we're almost out of time here on 20 Minute Health Talk. And so one of the things we always like to do is we like to end on a positive note. So Bernard, what gives you hope? What gives you optimism going forward? So what gives me hope and optimism? Um, earlier, we were talking about the disparities in healthcare and 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 how to address that. And what I love that Northwell is doing is partnering with the church community. And I think that that is a huge, huge, it's going to have a huge impact on disparities, regaining trust, because the pulse of the community is the, the church is the pulse of a community. And if you can partner with them, you'll, you'll get the community's trust as well. It, it'll take a while, but I think that we are onto something really huge, um, in the healthcare industry, and I would love to see that continue. I think that we have the the health system does roundtable discussions with with uh, clergy on a monthly basis, and that's going great. And, and you watch to watch it grow. 
But as we continue to establish that relationship, we're going to see major, major um, progress regarding uh, healthcare disparities. So I'm, I'm definitely proud of that effort that we're doing. Yeah, that's great. And what gives you hope and optimism? Well, I could piggyback a little bit off of that. Um, the vaccine gives me hope because I think that uh, one day I, people can actually shake hands again or not. And uh, with the church community, it's they're doing a lot of the um, vaccine pods in the churches because if you have the faith leader that's telling them, you know, to help with the hesitancy, you have the faith leaders that are telling them that this is a person they trust, that this is what you should do. Like these people aren't here to hurt you. They're here to help you. I think that helps. So the more people that we vaccinate, I think uh, the better off we all are. <laughs> Bernard Robinson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Tara, thank you so much for being here on 20 Minute Health Talk. And for you, the listener, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great week and stay safe. Get more expert insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. Subscribe to 20 Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.